Father, we've sung of a foundation that we can build our life on. Jesus, it's you. It's your teaching. It's your truth, your reality. May all that you are somehow, and you'll have to help us. If you don't help me and help those who listen to me this morning, it'll all be for naught. So help us understand in some way that is meaningful and truthful how great you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. This is going to be a very different kind of Sunday. Let me explain. What we normally do here is we take a book of the Bible and we walk right through it. We will begin that again next week in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in and out of the Gospel of Luke for a couple of years now. This Sunday is different, and this Sunday is different and might be mentally challenging for you because I want to present a big biblical idea. There's going to be a biblical basis. It's going to be a very short reading from the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. But we're going to deal with one of the foundational ideas in all of Scripture. Ideas are important. They have consequences. The bigger the idea, the bigger its consequence and its implications. And there's a lot of challenges along the way when we start talking about biblical ideas rather than just confining ourselves to a single biblical text. For one thing, I can't begin to tell you all about this idea. I'm going to be skimming by some other ideas along the way that may want you, may tempt you to say, wait, 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 stop, what? Tell me more about that. And I can't because we'd be here all day. So if you have any questions, if you have any pushback, if you want to think and pray and reason your way through some of the implications you hear from this very big biblical idea, that's why the connection card is in the bulletin. I welcome your phone calls, your emails, your texts, however you want to get in touch, because this stuff truly matters. So once a year, we invite Horizon Pregnancy Clinic to come and tell us about the good work they're doing that we're supporting both with time and money. They are taking young women who are in what is generally called a crisis pregnancy and helping them grapple with the idea that another human being is now growing inside them. And we love life and we protect life and we speak for life. And the question is, why? Is it just a political preference? That's how a lot of people cast it. It's just something we're into. Does it make us feel better? Or are there bigger reasons? Are there bigger ideas behind our action? The people who volunteer and give their money and serve and cry and listen and speak and encourage, they have a good, compelling reason to do so. Earlier this morning, two ducks tried to get into the church. They made three attempts to come and join you. They wouldn't worship, you would. And I kind of stared them down and they were unimpressed and that's why they made three attempts. They got past those ugly yellow bumps out front and were, I mean, they're headed straight in. And I stopped them basically by taking one big step toward them and they went out and they shrugged their dug shoulders and said, okay, well, all right, that's the way you're going to be. And they, they went elsewhere in the parking lot. Anybody else see them? 
You did. Okay. So they're, they're out there and they want in. So uh, maybe when we're done. Okay. <laughs> did I have any right to do that? We're just beings in the world. Some would say that I had no right and I actually infringed on their freedom. The big idea I have for you is in the very first chapter of Genesis. One of the limitations of what I'm about to present to you is that the Bible itself doesn't tell you much about what it means. It makes the startling claim that human beings, both men and women, let's be clear about that from the beginning, are made in the image of God. Genesis 1 presents the creation account of how God made the world, and it's spectacular. Without apology and without explanation, the Bible presents God as simply present. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And people who don't believe there is a God find that to be nonsense. But they too have to take a step of faith because if you dial back the origin, if it has an origin, of creation all the way back to something called the beginning, you're going to find that the most hard-bitten atheist has to believe that in the beginning something was there. Energy, or according to a study by UC Berkeley, there were particles and the interaction of those particles led eventually to everything else, and that's why we're here. In other words, whatever we make of the world that we live in, and I'm going to explain to you that we enjoy, and we enjoy it for good reason, everyone, when they begin honestly to sit down and grapple with reality, have to deal ultimately with a question of faith that they can't exactly know why either God was present or matter was present, and either God was there and made everything else, or matter was somehow there and somehow interacted with itself in a way that everything that currently exists was somehow set into motion, everyone's a believer in one way or another. The biblical idea is much better and much more comforting than some of the other voices you're going to hear today. And that brings me to another limitation, in addition to not being able to tell you everything about this passage. I'm going to quote three people to you. Ingrid Newkirk of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and two scholars, Dr. William Provine and Dr. Peter Singer of Cornell and Princeton. It's going to sound because of the shock value of their ideas, like I'm doing what a friend of mine calls nutpicking. Nutpicking is not nitpicking. Nutpicking is the intellectually dishonest idea of picking the worst person that represents an idea that you don't believe and presenting them as the one who speaks for everybody. And that's not my intention. It's intellectually dishonest. Ingrid Newkirk is a self-described extreme activist. The other two are legitimate scholars. One of them is, is now deceased. The other is quite active. They're not on the fringe. It's just that they've had, in Dr. Provine's case, after his death, some of his fellow atheist philosophers and scientists praised him for having the brutal honesty of explaining in clear language where their ideas actually led. And that's what I'm going to try to do today. 
I'm going to present to you in Bible the simple flat statement that when God made human beings, nothing else, only human beings, he made us in his image. That's why the front of your bulletin says imago Dei, and that's a phrase that pastors use when they want to feel smart and make people think they know a lot of things. That's just Latin. It somehow made it over into contemporary culture, but I'm presenting all this to you because I'm growing a little concerned that people who have recently watched a TED Talk or watched a video or gone to college or sent a child to college come to me on a fairly regular basis saying, did you know that some people say that? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Well, the answer always is yes, actually. It does. But ideas have consequences, and when ideas are new to you, you, like me, are prone to think that you're the first person to ever hear about that. And that maybe nobody has ever grappled with this before. I'm here to tell you from the vantage point of church history, hence the Latin, Imago Dei, people have been grappling with the ideas of the Bible and what they mean and how they're lived out literally from the time there were Christians for 2,000 years. And earlier than that, in the life of Israel. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, again, is the account of how God made the world that you live in and enjoy. God has been speaking, and things have been happening. But in Genesis 1.26, everything slows down and things categorically change. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both men and women created in the image of God. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Don't forget that word. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold... I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Without explanation, the Bible claims repeatedly in the space of a few short words that mankind, both men and women, and that's vitally important, are both made in the image of God. Your questions start really from the very beginning of that slow motion account of how we were made because God said, did you notice, let, let us. What's that? 
Well, as it turns out, that's going to matter a great deal, as I'm going to try to show you. This is the first hint that there is one God, the Bible's clear on that, says so repeatedly, but He somehow exists eternally as a plurality. In other words, one God, more than one person. This first hint in the Bible is going to be developed so that eventually you're going to discover that the nature of God is that God exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the very beginning, God, the God who is there, is in community. He's speaking somehow within himself, and you say, you just lost me. I have no idea how that could possibly be true. I get it. Did you feel like you just went back to high school or college at this point yet? Please don't be afraid of that. Big ideas are circulating on podcasts and TED Talks and in popular culture, and it seems that the only place that people are afraid to deal with big ideas and talk about them openly, ironically, is the Christian church that was made by a God with a mind and with emotions and will who makes decisions, who's given us the capacity as a scientist from generations ago, Johannes Kepler, famous astronomer and mathematician, when describing his science, said, I was just thinking God's thoughts after him. You've been given a mind like mine, it's limited, but just lean into a little bit. Regarding the nature of God, there is one God, but He eternally exists as three persons. How could that be? Well, the best analogy I've found is from a theologian we've read before in this church, Dr. J.I. Packer, who said, think of God simply as a team. I'll explain. I, unfortunately, am a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) That is, I am the fan of one team, just one. People have tried to persuade me to betray them and go over to the Rams. It makes sense. I've lived here for a long time. Can't do it. I'm the fan of one team. There's only one professional football team. They don't always play like a professional football team, but there is only one professional football team in Dallas. They are the Cowboys, and yet that singular team has many persons on it. Dozens. That's God. And this God says to himself, and he lets us listen in to begin to present an idea that he is going to make us. Let us, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Down to verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Notice the repetition, this matters. What I'm trying to present is a very simple idea that human beings are unique because we're made in the image of God. We're unique in three ways. First of all, we're unique in creation, meaning two different things. We're unique because we were created. You are not a random cosmic accident. As a very popular scientist says, you were not an accumulation of random stardust. You're much more than that. You are loved and personally made and created by the God who loves you. And I'm afraid that many times people object to the idea of God, not because it's unreasonable, but because if they're made, they're accountable. Does that make sense? If I just happen to be here, well, then maybe it really is up to me what I want to do. And maybe what maximizes my pleasure, and at the bottom line, my survival really is the best thing, and who are you, another random cosmic accident, to tell me that it's not? 
These ideas have implications. The first is that we are unique in creation because, first of all, we were created, but we were put at the top of creation. That it was permissible, it was morally okay for me to not harm the ducks, but by taking a step and saying one word, keep them out of this building. That was morally permissible. Ingrid Newkirk, as I'm going to show you, would probably disagree with me. But the Bible presents something that is so basic that you probably take it for granted, and people who don't even believe that God exists take this idea for granted that human beings actually are in a category all of their own, and that the life of a boy is, more, is worth more than the life of a fish or a parakeet or a worm or a horse or a monkey. People seem to know that. The Bible would explain it in two ways, that God has put not only eternity, but His law in our hearts. And the very fact that we were made by God and made God, by God to be the crown and the rulers of His creation matters. In other words, we are physical and spiritual beings who uniquely enjoy the richness of life in the world that God made for. People who are into animal rights have done amazing, groundbreaking research to discover the intelligence of animals. For instance, we now know that animals use tools and learn. And the smartest of animals can even have a rudimentary language. Does that make them like us? The Bible would say no. The world and all that is in it were made for us, as I'm going to show you. This is important. Because knowing that we are created beings and made as the crown over God's creation that are blessed by God and are put in the world to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it, I'll come to that in a moment, that matters and not everybody believes that. Dr. William Provine, this famous professor, said, there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. What an unintelligible idea. Did you get that? There's no free will. He's not the only person to say it. Sam Harris is very famous and very popular, and he will make a long and complicated argument that free will doesn't exist. In other words, just to put that on the, put that in practical level, you really had no choice but to do what you've done so far today. The clothes you chose, the food you ate, the decision to come here rather than stay home and prepare for the football game. The words that are coming out of my mouth, the reaction you're having as you deal with them. All of that was biologically determined. That we can't really put all the threads together, but so many things have been happening in what is essentially a random machine that nobody made and nobody is in charge of, that the world is actually brutal and merciless and unthinking and unknowing, and we simply happen to find ourselves in it further up the chain than the other beings who sadly coexist alongside us. There's no reason for anyone to say that you should or should not do anything. That's ethics. 
There's no morality, there's no guiding force, there are no principles. You didn't even choose to do anything ever in your entire life. Those kinds of ideas have consequences. That's why Ingrid Newkirk of PETA says this. Animal liberationists do not separate out the human animal. So there is no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig is a dog, is a boy, they are all mammals. If we all just happen to be here, not as creatures, in other words, not created, but simply as existent beings, she's probably right. The Bible has an entirely different picture. It says that because human beings are made by God, they're answerable to God, and they, by God's choice, are at the crown of His creation. Let me read Psalm 8 with you if you'll look over there. I want you to hear how different, knowing that human beings are made in God's image, makes the experience of the man or the woman who knows so. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Here's your place in the universe. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whoever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Human beings are the crown of God's creation that points back to how good and rational and loving and wonderful and emotional and thoughtful and purposeful God is. That's the amazing thing that people like Harris or Provine or any other philosopher or biologist that I could cite to you ironically is using the very intelligence to, that God gave him to deny that God exists in the first place. And even as they say there is no foundation for ethics and for morality, they go home and enjoy their wives and their family. They discover that they live in a world apparently by a cosmic accident that is wonderful to experience. Why? Because God made the world for us to richly enjoy it. I don't know what's happened to my body and mind, but most mornings I need at least 30 minutes of exercise just to simmer down. This morning was not the exception. All I could handle was about a two-mile walk in the wetlands, and because I come to church pretty early, I went out when it was pitch dark into the wetlands. I know, a little creepy, right? <laughs> we'll come to that, why you thought that was a little creepy and a little risky. I did too, but I'm out there like a doofus with my smartphone, right? Just making sure I don't <laughs> fall into the channel and stay on the path. And then the sun that God made started peeking over Saddleback. And colors that I found beautiful started to appear. 
And I looked around, and as far as I could see, 360 degrees, it was just me and that little slice of God's creation, and it was good. That's how much God loves the men and women He made. He made the world so that they would enjoy it, so that they would explore it and find in it that food and friendship and sex and jokes and all the things that make life worth living are a gift, a purposeful gift from God that points back to Him so that we would love Him. What this means is that God, not only are human beings unique being made in the image of God because of their creation, We're also unique because of our capacity that we have, and now I'm ranging across Scripture, we have capacities that nothing else in creation does. For instance, we we reason. And you've been doing it and thought, man, first time in church in a long time, this feels a little bit like the university. Again, hang with me. But even as you interact with these ideas, you're using reason and you're comparing ideas that you've thought and seeing if you believe it and seeing if it makes sense to you. All that you're doing is a gift of reason that God gave to human beings like He gave nothing else in the universe. We ponder, we plan, we discover, and we decide Unlike animals, in a categorically different way, we do all of those things better at a higher level than animals because we use moral and aesthetic and spiritual values. In other words, however far animal research goes, I don't think we will ever discover that the ducks walked away from the church talking about the injustice of it all. Nor did they have any kind of existential crisis. If I can't go anywhere I please, what's my life been about? Ducks don't have those issues. Human beings do. You ever lay awake at night wondering what your life will amount to? Ever lay awake at night regretting things? Wishing that you had decided, loved, forgiven, chosen, confronted better? Or did you ever get the idea that there was a better and that things like morality and aesthetics ever mattered? That's a gift from you. That's a gift to you from the God who made you. More importantly, not only do we reason, we also relate. We relate to one another. And this brings me back to that mysterious first phrase when God said, let us. Because God, as He is presented in the Bible, is one God who eternally exists as three persons. In other words, God Himself is and enjoys what we desire most, community. God has never been lonely. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always enjoyed themselves and each other. And once Jesus is on earth, especially in the Gospel of John, he'll sometimes pull back the curtain and speak of the life and the relationship he enjoyed with the Father before he was born among us to die on a cross and to forgive our sins. We relate. Human being, animals at the highest orders give us some semblance that they too have relationship. Anybody who's ever had a great dog like I have knows that that is something that God has also gifted some of His animals, but nobody relates like human beings relate. Dr. William Provine, the one who said, there's no foundation for ethics, there's no morality, there's no free will, 
all of it is simply an illusion, is by all accounts a love, was a loving husband who enjoyed a wonderful marriage, and I ever have wondered since I read about his life, and it breaks my heart that he never actually pondered a deeper meaning of why. We were made to love God and to love each other. That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus explained to us what life was all about. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, for the first time, God said, it is not good that man should be, would be, should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And Adam, who lives in perfect creation, enjoys for the first time and the only time since, for a brief time, a perfect marriage. And he is known and loved and accepted, and he knows and loves and accepts another human being like no human being ever since has, because in Genesis 3, the very next chapter, sin enters the world and ruins all of this. It doesn't erase it, but it mars it. And human beings ever since have been made in the image of God. What does that look like? It looks like take, finding a mirror that is smudged and broken and still finding somehow some of your reflection in it. It's not perfect. It's not as it once was, but it shows you tremendous capacities that you have been given, like thinking and reasoning and also relating that make you unique. This is what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew 22. Jesus was asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, of all the things that God told us, what matters most? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The first duty and the greatest joy of a human being is to love the God who made him. And Jesus says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All that God said boils down to love, boils down to relationship. We know this, we enjoy this, we hunger for it. That's why our funerals are sad and our healthy births are so joyous. It has everything to do with relationships and that will never change because we are made in God's image, not only to reason but to relate. This is so much a part of human nature, the way God made it, that people who study these issues know that a human being put in solitary confinement and provided everything they need to live except human touch and companionship, most people will begin to have serious problems within two weeks. You can feed them, provide for them in every way, just deny them human contact and conversation and cognitive and emotional and psychological and even physical problems begin manifesting among most people within 10 to 15 days. Why is that? Because human beings were made to relate, to fulfill this God-given capacity to relate to God and to relate to other people. And if you want to know how much it meant to God to heal this relationship and bring us back into it, Look at what 1 John says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. In other words, the full payment, the total satisfaction, the full covering for our sins. That's vertical love, love from God to His creation because God seeing His image marred, 
your life lost, sent his son to live among us to suffer every single human frailty, including temptation that you and I endure, but to do it perfectly in our place to bring us back into the fellowship of God himself. And then John gets, after explaining this vertical love, he says, here's how it works out horizontally. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love who? One another. If I know that I am made and loved in this way, I can't possibly deny love to another human being. I was wonderfully and beautifully and fearfully made, according to Scripture, through no choice of my own. Just because God is good, He made me and He made you. And then, having seen us lost in sin, He sent His Son after us to bring us back into the fellowship of God Himself, and I'm going to enjoy all that and say that I'm going to hate you instead? Can't be done. This is the foundation of ethics in Scripture from the Creator. So we're given a capacity not only to reason and to relate, but also to rule, to overcome and create and achieve and work and contribute. Every human being wants to. Nobody wants a dead-end job. It's almost a commonplace in America that those who retire early find sometimes that they find their lives empty of purpose and what they thought would be a great gift and a great joy ends up haunting them and they are constantly looking for something to do. Why is that? Because God made us that way. Because God overcomes, because God creates, because God achieves, because God works, because God contributes. All of that is wrapped up in that little word when he says to man and woman that they are in creation now to subdue it. There's a hint there that this sin that marred the image of God in man is already present in the world, and that's what makes this life both glorious and difficult. And all of God's creation, including human beings, is both glorious and fallen. And we love life, and we cling to it, and we fight for it, and we do everything in our power to preserve it. Why? Because God made it, and He made it precious. And we want to use it. This is why it matters that we are made in the image of God. And by all these things, we represent God. In other words, here's the idea, here's the big idea, being made in the image of God means that we image Him in the world. He's God, He's the Creator, we are human beings, we are the creation, but because He made us in His image, we show His image everywhere we go. That's why things like justice and love exist in every human heart. God will say later in Genesis 9-6 that if a human being sheds another person's blood, his blood should be shed. That's the foundation for justice. And again, it's just a flat statement that tells you that everything, both love and mercy and justice, it all boils down and circles back to being made in the image of God. The implications are something we live with every day. In dealing for the last several years with both police officers and soldiers, I've seen, even if they don't know it, an expression of the power of the image of God in every human being because soldiers and police officers who hurt or kill another human being in the line of duty, even if it was necessary and right, struggle mightily most of the time. 
People are traumatized by seeing another human being suffer. People arrive at the scenes of accidents or see a child injured and their heart breaks and they find difficulty sleeping and all kinds of terrible things happen to most people after witnessing human trauma, even if it was necessary, even if it was righteous. Why is that? Because we're made in the image of God and everywhere we go, we represent Him. And that brings us to the final idea and I'm done. That because we're made in the image of God, human beings are unique, not only in their creation and their capacity, but also in our dignity. That every human being has inherent, profound, weighty dignity for a simple reason. Not because he's better, not because he's capable, not because he's contribute, but he can contribute, but simply because he's human. Dr. Peter Singer of Princeton, a bioethicist, does not believe it. Finding no God in the world, thinking that the universe is a random machine, he has followed that idea to its logical extension. Listen. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. He concludes, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. And he has expressed the desire for human courts to take up a difficult idea. What capacities does a human being need to have before it would be morally wrong to kill them? He's argued that it's perhaps morally permissible to kill an otherwise healthy human being until they're about two years of age. Why? Because only when you're about two do you begin to know that you exist and desire to continue on with your own will. Until then, 18-month-old, one-year-old, he doesn't know, he doesn't understand. It may not be wrong to kill him if it suits the needs of those who actually understand all this. I'm not nutpicking. He's not an extremist. He's one of the world's greatest scholars teaching us how to think about life. These things matter. Listen to how different the Bible is. James here is speaking of the way people speak to one another, and he says, with it, our tongue, he's talking about, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things, what's it say? Ought not to be so. There's ethics. There's morality, there's right and wrong. He said people who praise God with their mouth shouldn't turn around and use the same mouth to curse people made in His image. Did you catch the big idea? It's right there. People are made, how? In the likeness of God. That means that since you're made in the likeness of God, I have no right to abuse you. And if I'm bigger and stronger than you, if I have more capacity than you because you're very old or very weak or very sick or very young or very unintelligent... All the more reason for one image bearer to love and protect and dignify the other. That's why we care about the unborn, and not only the unborn, that's why we care about the victims of sex trafficking. That's why we care how it goes with our elders, so that they're not abused financially and emotionally and physically in their closing years when they can no longer protect themselves. 
This is a big idea and it has big implications. And all I've tried to tell you is simply this. We represent God well when we love and value people the way He does. This is why we care. This is why we serve. This is why we pray. This is why we preach. This is why we give. This is why we step forward for people who don't sometimes have the capacity to ask for help. We love and we step forward because we are image bearers who love our God and through loving Him, we love and serve those He made in the same way He made us, whom He also loved and gave His Son to forgive their sins. Let's pray. If you know this God and maybe you've just been reminded of how you were made and how you were loved, can I just invite you to thank Him? This is why you have value. This is why you don't have to be or achieve one more thing to matter to God, to matter to people. And if maybe you've been struggling with the whole idea of faith, but God has been bringing you to a point where you're going to give up and start trusting Him, can I invite you to pray and tell Him so? If you know Jesus died for your sins and you've been putting off trusting Him, maybe this is your morning and you'd like to tell Him so. Father, every day, every moment is holy. Help us serve and love and give and protect and write and think and speak and every other good thing you've given us the capacity to do. Help us do it gratefully as people who are wonderfully made in your image. And where those who are weak and voiceless and defenseless, they've been hurt by others, wrecked by sin and by cruelty. Help us bear your image into those situations, not so that people will see us, but so that they'll see your image in us and know through our loving, limited service how much you love them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Crosspoint said, amen.